In today's episode of the Iman Wire podcast. We need communities and different actors to come together, work together, and address the multifaceted nature of violent extremism. CVE focuses on a community that by and large doesn't really have these elements within it or even the power to impact these elements that are outside of it. The debate over CVE. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam rasulullah. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another uh, Iman Wire podcast episode. I'm your host, Muhammad Salim, the editor in chief at Iman Wire. Our topic today is going to be about countering violent extremism. Our guests today are Alejandro Butel, um, who is uh, a researcher in, in uh, CVE, in Countering Violent Extremism at the University of Maryland. And our other uh, guest is Dr. Mohamed Ghilan, um, who holds a PhD in neuroscience, is also a very well known writer and commentator and has also served as an imam. So I'm going to first start off with, I think for a lot of our listeners, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about CVE, but a lot of us don't really know what CVE is. And I think we've just heard like, well, you're the pro CVE or anti CVE, but I don't think a lot of us could really, I certainly couldn't really go into details of describing what CVE is. So I was wondering, maybe you could just start us off, Alejandro, to basically give us an overview of, of the definition of CVE and, and, you know, where we are with it today. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. First of all, thank you very much for uh, inviting me onto the program. It is truly a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, and I cannot thank uh, you all enough for really having an opportunity to create an opening for a very thoughtful discussion on this very, very sensitive uh, topic. Um, and the first question, what is CVE, I think is a very, very important one because my sort of observation looking at a lot of the, I can't even necessarily call them debates or discussions at times, but argumentation that I've seen uh, among our fellow community members, it, the, one of the root causes of such disagreement uh, is that People don't even define what it is exactly that we're discussing first and foremost. So the perspective that I'm coming from is as an academic researcher at the University of Maryland College Park, um, as someone who is sort of steeped in the research itself, very familiar with the academic literature, but also then familiar with the evolving and emerging practice and implementation of this concept. And I want to make it very clear that what I'm talking about first and foremost is going to be the concept, and then hopefully in the discussion we can tease out the nuances of perhaps the implementation as well. But insofar as the concept is concerned, the easiest explanation uh, and the most common uh, definition that I can give, and there's no single definition, but what they all tend to have in common is that it is a way of engaging in Ide uh, violence prevention, preventing ideologically motivated violence using means that go beyond law enforcement, surveillance, arrest, and prosecution of individuals. Let me repeat that again one more time. That it is about trying to prevent violence by ideologically <coughs> motivated non-state actors and that goes beyond law enforcement, surveillance, arrest, and prosecution of individuals. So what we're talking about then are two things, the people who are involved in this concept of CVE, and then the second thing, which is what type of activities are also being involved. So as researchers at Maryland, 
um, we like to break out this almost meta concept of CVE, this big concept of CVE, into what we call the five lines of effort. The five lines of effort are as follows. Prevention, intervention, interdiction, uh, rehabilitation, reintegration, and before all of that, engagement. Let me start with engagement because I I said that last because I want to start with that first. Engagement simply is people working together. Uh, And oftentimes when we're talking about violent extremism, violent extremism is a crime in the United States like many other types of crime. And crime uh, oftentimes has not only its violent manifestations, but it has a lot of its underlying root causes. And so what a, a lot of people say then, like academic researchers like myself, is that we need communities and different actors to come together, work together, and address the multifaceted nature of a particular type of crime. In this case, we're going to be talking about violent extremism. So engagement is about the forming of partnerships. Okay, fine. So we have people need to talk to each other, know who they are. The next thing is, well, what are we going to be doing together? What, 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 what's the point of this? We're not here around the table singing kumbaya. We're not here to be friends. We're here because we have a purpose. We, we're in charge of trying to do something. That's where prevention comes in. The easiest way that I could think of explaining prevention is it's kind of like public health uh, in the sense that 95% of preventing uh, most types of violent crime, including uh, ideologically motivated ones like violent extremism, uh, are going to be addressing not so much the violent manifestations, but a lot of the underlying uh, uh, issues that are often associated with uh, uh, entry into violence. And notice I'm being very, very particular about my words here. I use the word association. I don't use cause or causation here. And hopefully we'll, we'll tease out the nuances a little bit more. Because as a, as a researcher and as a social scientist, one of the most controversial aspects about CBE, for instance, that people say that, well, there are these models of so-called radicalization, another hot topic term, hot topic concept where people are saying that they can predict what causes prediction and cause what leads people to violent extremism. That in fact is not where the research and the practice on CVE is going. We're not talking about prediction and we're not talking about uh, uh, we're not talking about causation necessarily. We know at <coughs> least that the research shows that there are things that are associated with it. But we don't know exactly what directly causes it because when we look closely at the lives of the individuals who go down these pathways into violence, there is no one single factor nor one single pathway that can explain why individuals from various religious, racial, ethnic, age, backgrounds, whatever, what have you, there is no one single factor that can explain it. You know, it's like, uh, uh, there's this famous Nickelodeon show that I used to watch growing up. Clarissa explains it all. Well, you know, sometimes people look to these so-called radicalization models, especially these older ones, as though it's a Clarissa explains it all. Well, Clarissa cannot explain it all. And there's no one single factor that can do that. So we try to do at least is take a preventive and public health approach with prevention. 
But then sometimes when we're trying to build up these prevention, these programs, strong, healthy communities, identity formation, uh, uh, civic awareness, religious literacy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, even the strongest, healthiest communities will still have individuals who may need special assistance, special help. That's where we talk about intervention. It's in many ways crisis counseling, emergency social safety nets, that kind of thing. The easiest analogy that I can make, particularly in in, uh, a U.S. context, here in America, um, we really love our guns. Uh, It's for better or for worse, we really like our guns. And at times, um, as uh, part of the culture of um, embracing gun ownership has been occasionally that there have been mass shootings across the country. Uh, And so there have been methodologies that have been developed now to prevent mass shootings in workplaces, in schools, universities, things like that. And so if I had to make a description of what intervention would look like, it's based on those kinds of methodologies and those kinds of general philosophies and approaches. But even so, sometimes intervention is not feasible. So what do you do? You've had these partnerships, you build the strong communities, you try to put that person into crisis counseling, it's not working. That's when you call the police. That's when we talk about uh, uh, interdiction there. And notice, by the way, then, that in this framework, law enforcement, surveillance, arrest, and prosecution then, if we're looking at this as a chain of events, is much more as a last resort rather than a first resort. It's completely reorienting the priorities and the sequencing of how these kinds of activities are done. Okay. Aside from arrest, then, there's a question of, well, what happens to these troubled individuals, whether they've been put in jail or whether they've been put in in crisis counseling? Because, again, the whole point of intervention is is, is to put people into counseling rather than to handcuffs. So regardless, whether they get into counseling or whether they get into handcuffs, what are you going to be doing with these individuals afterwards? Especially if they're going to be coming out of prison, these are people who are going to need social services, they're going to need help, whether they are an ideologically motivated offender or whether they were someone who carjacked, did a carjacking. People who come out of prison lots of times face severe social stigma. They can't find jobs. People don't want anything to do with uh, do with them. They need support and help. And I'm not saying this, you know, just from a compassionate standpoint as a Muslim, but even just as a social scientist, what is going to happen with these individuals? Well, what the evidence shows us consistently is that when those individuals don't get the kind of care and support that they need, they engage what's called recidivism. They return back to crime. And what's so interesting, for instance, is that some of the research that we did at the University of Maryland showed that these cases of so-called prison radicalization, where individuals were supposedly alleged to have been um, indoctrinated and influenced to into extremist ideologies, and then when they go outside after they've been released from prison, they engage in acts of terrorism. What we actually find is with the exception of one single case in 2005, one single case, every other case that has ever been cited that we found 
was a case not of prison radicalization, a case where someone was being unduly influenced inside prison walls, but it was a failure of reentry, where a person was struggling to find assistance on the outside, and unfortunately, there were bad elements that found them first, scooped them up, and put them down a pathway towards criminality rather than on, shall we say, the Sirat al-Mustaqim. So I apologize for being a little long-winded, but hopefully this is sort of like the nuances of conceptually what CBE is. And then, obviously, there is a difference between what is CBE in theory and what is CBE in practice. And one other thing that I should mention is that everything that I've described really is, at its most, applicable particularly in the United States. People have their modifications for CVE in other countries, but what I'm going to be talking about here in this discussion, I'm going to be focusing on here in the United States. I want to ask about this interjection part. Um, Inter- inter- interdiction? Interdiction. Sure. Where, where the police are going to be called. Sure. Because from, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a cop, um, okay. but from my interactions with, from my period as an imam, I had to deal with this issue okay. directly. And when we talk to the RCMP, which is kind of like our main police force there, mm-hmm. um, they cannot move until an actual crime takes place. So I, I this is the challenge with regards to CVE being conceptually not about surveillance, yet in practice, you kind of are asking for surveillance because you're looking for individuals who have not done anything. You're checking out what they're believing, what they're saying. And then you're asking the community at some point in time when you feel like something is about to happen, call the police because now you've you've had engagement from the start. The police are being called. They come in and then they ask very concrete questions. What happened? Who did what? What with our particular case, we just showed them text messages. We just showed them, you know, accounts of what was said. And their answer was, well, we can't really, this is hearsay. We can't really do anything um, until something happens. And so this, to me, f- feels kind of like the Achilles heel of this whole program because you can't, if, if you're going to wait for, you're trying to charge people for pre-crime, thought crime, mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's really part of the pushback from the quote-unquote anti-CVE crowd. If you can elaborate on that and how that is supposed to work from concept to practice. That's a great, great question. Let me first preface it um, by, I think, informing some of our listeners a little bit about my background. Um, Before uh, joining uh, the University of Maryland, I um, spent several years in other Muslim nonprofits uh, engaging uh, not just in research, but also in civil rights advocacy and practice. Mm. So, for instance, I was uh, at an organization called the Muslim Public Affairs Council uh, and did a lot of the civil rights advocacy. I also happened to be a card-carrying member of what's uh, here in the United States referred to as the American Civil Liberties Union. Mm. It's kind of ironic that I'm a researcher on CVE <laughs> and yet I'm a card-carrying <laughs> member of the ACLU. <laughs> but that's also because it's my personal belief that um, – there isn't necessarily a uh, uh, a contradiction between um, an ardent defense of free speech uh, and also smarter and effective approaches to security as well. Um, 
And the question that you just asked is like one of several $64,000 U.S. questions because <laughs> uh, I know we may have to have some currency exchange here. But $64,000 U.S. questions uh, related to CVE. And it really comes down to the issue of free speech and where where does that sort of rubber meet the road within when can we call the police and things like that. This is one of the reasons why I keep going back to the question of intervention and interdiction um, and the methodologies that were used to prevent mass shootings because this kind of issue keeps coming up and up and up again outside of just a violent extremist context, but even in other cases like here in the United States, um, Columbine, uh, uh, in Columbine High School in Colorado back in 1999, or the Virginia Tech shooting, or Newtown, Massachusetts, or other things like that. There are these sort of special multidisciplinary teams, um, people that consist of um, mental health professionals, social service uh, 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 providers. Uh, in some cases, if this is in a workplace setting, HR, human resources, if this is uh, in a school setting, educators, if this is in houses of worship, because there are churches even that, that have these kinds of things too, then they will include uh, sometimes uh, uh, pastors or rabbis and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, they come together and what they do is they specifically focus on whenever there is a threat. So it's not just... For instance, if someone were to say, well, I think that um, Jabhat al-Nusra, or now it's, uh, what is it, uh, Jabhat Fat uh, al-Sham now is, the, is mm. the new name of the organization. They, they change names every mm. 20 days or so. Rebranding. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, that, uh, that Jabhat uh, is the most effective organization right now in fighting the Syrian regime against ba uh, Bashar al-Assad. Mm. That in of itself is just simply a political opinion mm -hmm. that, while some of us may be uncomfortable with, does not in any way, shape, or form constitute or even suggest that there is a violent threat. However, if someone were to say uh, that I, uh, I believe that uh, Jabhat is the most effective uh, organization out there and I would like to join and I'm interested in buying a plane ticket – that in of itself then would potentially constitute a reason for one of these multidisciplinary teams to come mm -hmm. together because that person has expressed an interest and intent in joining a criminal organization. Or even more so if they decide not to go abroad, but then they say, okay, I, um, I am a supporter of Daesh mm -hmm. and um, – uh, for instance, the imam there uh, is uh, is a believer in democracy and therefore is a kafir, and I have access to weapons. We should do something about this. The combination of access to weapons <clears throat> and the fact that uh, in some contexts, this guy is saying, using takfir, that this person ought to be punished for their disbelief. Mm that would constitute some sort of a threat and a reason for there. So the idea then, brother, is that there has to be some sort of a tangible threat that is stated, whether explicitly or implicitly, and then there has to be an examination of the context around that threat. Is this person just blowing off steam? Are they 
uh, or is there something else behind it? Are they more serious about that? Are they being very specific as to the targets? Do they have the means by which they can carry out a threat? Because the saying that we have uh, in the security profession is that uh, threat is intent plus capability. Just because mm-hmm. someone says something doesn't necessarily mean that they have the capability to carry it out. Yeah. But if there is intent that is stated plus a potential capability, that's where it gets really serious and you want to grade that level of threat. So there was an interview on Vice. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it was, uh, last year, just after Mosul fell in 2000, when was it, 14? Okay. Um, they had a Somalian-Canadian and it's the founder of Vice. It was such a surreal oh. interview to watch. Okay. And he was saying, it was Skype and talking from Mosul. Uh, and he Whoa. said, I'm sitting there in front of the CSIS guy, which is our CIA mm-hmm. version. And uh, he said, this CSIS guy's an idiot. I'm sitting right in front of him saying whatever I need to say. And the next day I was on a plane ticket to Turkey and here I am in Mosul now talking to you. Uh, these law enforcement agencies are idiots. They don't really understand what's going on. And the reason I bring him up is because how realistically... How should we expect realistically for somebody to state their intent that seriously? Um, and if they're intelligent, I mean, most criminals don't tend to advertise their crime right before they go ahead and do it. That is a great question. Um, actually, believe it or not, and this again is one of the reasons why I go back to the mass violence and compare that to lone actor terrorists. <clears throat> so in an article I wrote in the islamicmonthly.com, Um, It gives sort of this short comparison between lone actor terrorists or even people like the individual that you just described um, and mass shooters. Hmm. And what's so interesting is that the research actually shows that uh, anywhere from two-thirds to to 80% of of the cases, depending on the study that one is referencing, whether it's mass shooters or whether it's lone actor terrorists, they actually broadcast their intent to people around them. Interesting. It's known as leakage. Okay. And part of the reason why they do, there's, and people are very complex. SubhanAllah. It's, you know, Allah, Allah has created human beings, you know, in the most interesting of molds, but people are also very complex. And so oftentimes one of the motivations for why people will state their intention for doing these kinds of things. In some cases, it's it's sort of like guilt, um, where uh, you know they they want their parents to know you know I'm going off and this is my goodbye or their friends or whatever. In other cases, though, it's 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 nuffs. People want pe- these perpetrators want others to know, and this isn't by the way just with Muslims. This is across the ideological spectrum across even non-ideological stuff, they, people, they want to broadcast the reasons why they're doing why, what they're doing. Mm. So in the case of a mass shooter, it's, oh, this person, these people bullied me and I've been ridiculed for a while. Or with, you know, a, a workplace, it's like I've been screwed over by management. In the case of violent extremists, it's I want to fight for a good cause and I want people to recognize that, you know, if I'm going up and shooting up a mall or I'm attacking a in many cases, there have been stated attempts by people like from Daesh, for instance. I want to attack other mosques. I'm doing this because of my sort of stated belief in the cause. Whatever you know, whatever specific justifications they use, but they want to make it clear. 
I am doing this because of these kinds of specific motivations, and I don't want you to write me off as mentally ill. Are those uh, declarations discovered before or after the act? Both. So in uh, often typically most times they are going to be broadcast beforehand, but the question is twofold. Number one, uh, uh, are people going to uh, to recognize its meaning and the seriousness of the meaning? Mm. And then number two is th- those who who recognize this, are they going to feel comfortable actually re- uh, reporting this and reporting it to whomever, whether that's to uh, an imam or a, or a pastor or some other you know like trusted social worker mm. or reporting it to the police? But are they willing to report it? And what's so interesting is is that um, there are some colleagues, uh, Michael Williams, uh, mm. who's a researcher in this area, actually uh, came out with a study uh, a few months ago, earlier this year, that found that uh, some of the biggest reasons why people don't report it uh, is because of fear of consequences. From whom? Very good question, right? So from whom, uh, in some cases... Uh, it's not from, just from whom, but also to whom. Mm. So uh, let's start with to whom. To whom, if I report this, is my friend or my peer going to get in trouble? Okay. If I report this, am I going to get in trouble? Okay. And then the question is, who am I going to get in trouble with? If I report this to a pastor or I report this to you know my family or someone else, am I going to am I going to get in trouble with them, or are they going to get in trouble with them? And what's so interesting is that for myself, looking at this as a researcher, but as someone who's engaged with my local communities, I go to policymakers, I go to law enforcement uh, officials, but I also go to my local communities and say, number one, to, to the law enforcement officials, this is why it's so important to build trust with local communities when people are coming in, flashing badges and guns, uh, and oftentimes being intimidating, or they're taking these training courses from people, shall we say, that lack uh, Islamic knowledge uh, and oftentimes have hidden uh, motives and agendas, uh, what some people call the Islamophobia industry, mm. okay? Uh, that is not helpful. That does not build trust. That does not build comfort. To my fellow community members, I say, we need to come to an understanding, whether it's on mental health issues, whether it's uh, on domestic violence, or when it comes to, we'll just call it mass violence, whether it's ideologically motivated or non-ideologically motivated. We need to understand and, and help our community members know the difference between getting help and snitching. Mm. That is very, very important knowing the difference between getting help and getting snitching and that when getting help, that part of the understanding of getting help is not always just about calling law enforcement, but trying to develop the capacities at a local level by civil society within our own communities that don't involve law enforcement sometimes. Because mm. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a good example. Um, there are two examples that I like to give, but for, for this purpose, just one of them is, um, uh, back in 2010, there was a young 
a Somali American kid um, by the name of Muhammad Osman Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Um, came from a, uh, a broken household, had some substance abuse issues, was living with his father. His mother was living elsewhere um, because of a divorce. Um, had some struggles uh, uh, in college, even though he was a well liked individual, but having some identity. Uh, identity issues and occasional run-in with the law. Uh, and so the father's had a rocky relationship with his son for a few years. And one day he hear, hears his son starting to spout off some uh, rhetoric from Al-Qaeda because the son happened to stumble upon uh, some materials uh, on the internet that were extremist in, in content. Mm. What does the father do? He doesn't call the imam, doesn't call a social worker or anything else, doesn't really, doesn't, that doesn't come to mind. He freaks out. He calls the FBI instead. And what the, F, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, mm. kind of like your RCMP. Yeah. And what ends up happening is that the FBI, they're not social workers, they're law enforcement investigators, and their job is to the surveil, hammer. arrest, and prosecute people. <laughs> it's the hammer. <laughs> right. They're the, they're, that's right. They're trained to be a hammer, they're, and they see everything as nails. Yeah. And, that, and there's a place for that. Yeah. Okay? Uh, but in this particular case, this is a young man though who was saying things, but he wasn't necessarily doing anything. And clearly he came from a confused background. But the FBI agents doing what they're doing, they sent in an informant and an undercover investigator sort of coaxed the young man along to say, would you be interested in taking this to the next step? And the young man who, full of bravado, full of braggadocio, talking big, puffing mm. his chest up, said yeah. Uh, and over the course of a few months, this investigation led to the point then where this young man said, okay, I am willing to detonate a bomb at a Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And eventually what ended up happening was that when the uh, the undercover agents and informants, you know, put him to this plot and he pressed the send button to detonate the remote controlled explosive, the FBI swooped in, arrested the individual. Hmm. That young man is doing 30 years to life behind bars. His life is effectively ruined. Ruined, yeah, it's over. It's over. Okay. He's not going to be getting out until maybe he's 47 or so. Yeah. That's provided if he even gets parole. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things that I, as a, as a, as your fellow Muslim, and I'm saying this not just directly yeah, to you, yeah, but yeah. but to the listeners, but also as a researcher as well, I'm saying that there are opportunities and possibilities then to do a, a sort of third path between either doing nothing and freaking out, or freaking out and going in the extreme opposite direction and calling law enforcement. At the point when a young man is maybe saying some things that might be disturbing, but hasn't taken steps toward criminality yet, and we I, want to try and, and find a third path where we can, and that's where intervention comes in. I still I struggle with the question of what is the point that we can identify that this person is beyond uh, the point of no return. I'll give you an example. We had sure. a convert in Victoria. Uh, this uh, young brother, he's from Nigeria, Christian background, and Christianity is taken very seriously in his household. Uh, for whatever reason, he ended up finding truth in Islam. He accepts it. But then he gets surrounded by a particular group of people who, by the way, because of the direction the mosque and the community was going in, they found us to be heretical, 
you know, we're the more traditional side. They don't like that. And so they weren't even involved in the community that much anyways. And so he got surrounded by, by these individuals. They started giving him the right kind of teachings to take him to down that, you know, extremist path. And he ended up having a fight with his father when he came over to visit, when he was at the mosque try, to try to understand what's going on with his son. Why is he becoming a Muslim? And that was his initial concern. But all of a sudden, this young man went within a period of six months of just trying to figure out the issue between Jesus Christ and the Son of God and all of that stuff into, we need a caliphate and we need to have our glory back. And when I heard about what's going on with him, I thought, six months is a very short amount of time for you to encompass Islamic history and legal theory and all of these things. So clearly you're not saying this from your own self. You've been fed this stuff and you're saying it. Now... All of that is still just talk. He's not saying, I want to do this. And he's just saying that the Muslim Ummah is down and out and we need to revive this. And so it's still, I guess, would be considered political talk. He's just expressing an opinion. He disappears. Next thing we know, he's in Libya with ISIS. So we talked to the RCMP about that. There was no point at any, at any time that he expressed a direct statement that they could act upon. And he just kept spewing this rhetoric. And if you talk to the people that surrounded him, they will disavow ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all of these groups. Yet what they were feeding him, basically they take the horse to the water and then they step back and see like, what are you going to do? And they'll tell you, don't drink the water, but they will do everything possible for you on your own now as a young man to put two and two together on your own. They don't have to spell it out for you. I mean, these people are very clever in how they coax these people into doing these things. So from a CVE perspective, we could try to, I tried to talk to them. Some people would well, even say that the law enforcement does the same thing when they entrap a lot of them. They yes, the, the entrapment works, they, yeah. They, they put the water and then they just, they just step, step back. back. So I, you know, we tried to talk to them. We tried to say whatever we could. We tried to quote all these people. But in the process of indoctrinating this individual, there is also a, a dismissal and a refutation of any other attempts to try to counsel and show them the other way around. And he got to the point where he just disappears, and sure enough, he's off in Libya now. And God knows if he's alive or not. So how do you deal with that from a CVE perspective? Like, at what point do you intervene? And when you try to interdict or interject, he's not listening to you anyways. And he's dealing with people that are not even in... This is the point that I have a problem mm -hmm. with CVE and the community. From my understanding, individuals that are like that, they're not really that involved, mostly. Most of them, they're not that involved in the community for the community to have that type of positive impact and bring them and turn them back around. So CVE, from my understanding, focuses on a community that by and large doesn't really have these elements within it or even the power to impact these elements that are outside of it. How would we deal with that now? There's, I, actually, before you answer, Alejandro, I, just to add to question. what Muhammad yeah. was saying, was I, I'd like to hear your thoughts about um, I believe his name is Ahmed Rahami, you know, that the case in, mm -hmm. in New Jersey, because there was a case where at least it was reported in the main mainstream media where his father said that, you know, he had said statements that concerned him and he called the FBI, like, I think a year or something before um, when it was it was presumed, I guess, they, they investigated and it was just some sort of domestic issue or some social type thing. Or, But I'd like to hear your sort of comments on that as well as the case that Muhammad's bringing on before we get into the, the broader issue of, of you know, whether whether the Muslim community at large is, is really the, 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 the target that, should be, that we should be looking at or something else. Like, what are your thoughts about that case specifically? Because that seems to me like a case where, by the model you're saying, that 
the uh, the family thought something was was going wrong. They they asked you know the law enforcement to to intervene. Uh, their inf- investigation, obviously, they didn't see that there was actually um, a, a, an imminent threat or what have you, and then they pulled back. But then you have what happened later on. So, like, what are your thoughts on that, and what, how can you maybe reconcile that with sort of the concept? Because I think a lot of the times when we talk about CV, it's like the the concept sounds, you know, it sounds like okay, yeah. But I think there's a lot of there's issues on the ground. There's mm-hmm. the, the distrust. I think that we'll talk about maybe later. There's a big distrust of having a state actor, you know, in this process. You know, why can't a community do this themselves, and then you can, and then you can throw it back at me and say like, "Well, the community is not doing that." But there's this distrust of having law enforcement in this process. And then when we do involve in law enforcement, you have number one, you have something like this happen where you could say something fell fell through, or on the other on the hand, you have entrapment cases, which are pretty frequent as well. So, you know, how do you you know reconcile some of those things? It's a great set of questions. Um, let me let me start with this. Um, Because you asked, like, when do we discern between threat and non-threat and when should we be doing all that sort of stuff? And then the other question is, should the community be a focus of uh, any sort of CBE efforts, even if it's government-led or civil society-led or whatever? Let me start with the fact that there is no such thing as a foolproof strategy. No such thing. Even the term CVE, and this is something that my colleagues and I uh, hopefully will be writing upon shortly, but even CVE is a little bit of a misnomer, and it's kind of confusing. Countering may not be the right word. It's more like mitigating. Mm. Mitigation is different, obviously, than elimination. Yes. Uh, You can reduce it to uh, the lowest number possible, but that implies that there always still be some people who will engage in some sort of acts of violence. And it's particularly sort of troublesome because in the United States, especially since 9-11, there is this expectation, and I think it has bled into some other uh, uh, countries' expectations as well about preventing ideologically motivated violence, that the bar has to be set at, we need to prevent every single one. And that if we don't prevent every single potential attack or every single individual who goes off, that it's just an unmitigated disaster. Mm -hmm. And it's completely unrealistic. Completely, completely unrealistic. I mentioned before, 80% of, up to 80% of those cases. But what about those other 20%? Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes those other 20% just don't state their case, don't state. You're going to have situations like that. Uh, And I don't want to give the listeners here the impression that you know, there uh, that there's some foolproof way of doing it. No, there is not. There are there are additional things that can be done to maximize mitigation, but we should not delude ourselves into thinking that it is possible for total elimination. It's just not possible. Absolutely not possible. It's hard for me to comment then on specific cases, whether the the case of the Nigerian uh, uh, brother that you mentioned before, or the case of Ahmed Rahami in large part because uh, the nature of investigations are that they don't always publicly release all of the information. We tend to find out a lot of crucial details two, three years after arrests or after incidents take place. So it's hard for me to sort of speculate uh, uh, upon these kinds of things. As a, as a researcher on these kinds of, of, of incidents and matters, we not only look at news reporting, but then we try to look at court cases, transcripts, wiretaps, uh, in other cases where there may have been successful community-led pro, uh, 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 intervention efforts. 
we talk to the counselors themselves, or in rare cases, people who have walked away from these things altogether, the actual people who have been intervened with. But again, it's very hard for me to speculate on mm. any one particular uh, 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 case at all. Uh, so there, what we may end up finding later on is that these individuals may have disclosed some of their uh, some of their intent. And one thing uh, I will uh, also say is that um, when it becomes known that individuals are spouting off that kind of uh, uh, extremism, um, it's sort of my personal take and opinion that. My hope would be that there would be people such as yourself, like you did, that would come and talk to uh, uh, individuals like that and continue to do so. Um, it's hard because a lot of the people who say the things that they do, like the Nigerian case, they come off as so hard-hearted mm. that it's like, do you really think that I'm getting through to them? But one of the most interesting things looking at the life courses of a lot of these types of extremists is that even when they may be espousing what may seem like they're totally committed to the cause and really hard-hearted, even in one-on-one -on -one interactions, we never truly know what's in the heart of, of, of individuals. Mm -hmm. Only Allah ultimately, yeah. you know, if, if I was to take a religious take on it, right? <clears throat> Only Allah ultimately knows what's in the heart of his creation, the heart of the believers, right? Yes. And oftentimes people may even end up saying things that may give one outward appearance, but inwardly they may actually be questioning these things um it reminds me of uh one particular case where i had uh, a brother who did an intervention muslim brother who did an intervention with uh with someone had a lot of ongoing talking things like that uh, and it didn't seem like anything was going anywhere um, but what we found out later was that, um, in fact, the person had begun to soften his heart, mm. but, but, but there was a point where this brother who went off, uh, and moved, uh, to another part of the country and pursued a new, uh, aspect of his life, lost touch with that other individual. Mm. And as a result of that, then that process that was developing, that softening process eventually just sort of fell apart. Mm. And that individual ended up going off to Yemen um, and uh, joining uh, the group known as Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Mm. That individual, by the way, happened to be Samir Khan. Oh, wow. Um, so I say that just to say, Allahu alam, mm. but don't ever necessarily give up hope. Compassion, subhanAllah, not just saying this as a believer, but as a social scientist studying these life course trajectories of these individuals, compassion is one of the most oftentimes potent forces that can bring people back mm. from this kind of, of thinking and trajectory. So I'll just, I'll say that for the record. As to your question though about when should we go to law enforcement versus when conducting an intervention, right? Where does the intervention end and where does the interdiction take place? When do we just call call it quits on an intervention and when do we uh, uh, call in the police, right? 
Without getting into too many of the details, I will uh, recommend, for instance, uh, a a toolkit that I had helped my former employers at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. It's called the Safe Spaces Initiative. And yes, I know that there's a lot of controversy around it, but I would recommend people to read it. And in particular, there is a section talking about addressing your question there. Mm-hmm. When do you keep the counseling going and when do you call it quits? And essentially, it follows the ethical protocols of any mental health counselor that whenever they know that a person has expressed violent intent, there's something that's called duty to warn, duty to protect. Mm. In fact, this is the very thing that Daoud Walid had mentioned in his criticism of the shared responsibility committees on Emanwire. What he was espousing was essentially safe spaces position on when do you end an intervention and call the police. Yeah. And his criticism of the of these shared responsibility committees, the SRCs, is that they're not following those protocols, a criticism that I entirely share. Mm. But all the more reason then why the evidence suggests that government-led CVE efforts are highly problematic yeah. and why instead community-led ones need to need to take place because then at least there's a, a, a much greater chance of following those established protocols that way. Hmm. The, and, oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. The other question that you had asked, brother, was why even involve the community then in the first place? Yeah. You said these people if, are. If peripheral. most of them are not, yeah. they're peripheral. It's a it, it, it is a it's a great question, right? And and my response to that is that you don't attract the bees with vinegar; you attract them with honey. Our masajid and our community centers are to be part of the solution, in the sense that they they have the potential. We're here at the DNet Center here. Mashallah, this place is amazing. Where we have not only a musalla, because when people think of the masjid, mm. they think of it just as the musalla, the place to place to pray. But the sunnah, the example of what a the original sort of masjid was like, would, was that it was a center of civic and social life as well. Yes, which is what the, what the DNA center here, for example, is a living example of. Yeah. and if we're following that prophetic sunnah. Where our masajid and our community centers and Islamic centers and whatever labels we want to give them, they're following that, then they can provide these kinds of wraparound services to individuals in need, whether it's domestic violence, whether uh, you know it's just people coming out of prison for other things, or whether we're talking about violent extremism or some other family uh, need, you know, substance abuse. The, the our masajid can be can be places where they can get these resources, these counseling, this sort of assistance that's there. That is the reason why it's not meant to problematize our communities, which it has often been understood and in some cases has been communicated as. Unfortunately, I'm not going to deny that. Mm. But the intent is that our communities are actually potential. Uh, 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 centers for solution rather than potential problems. So, so far you've been focusing it all on CVE from a community perspective. Correct. I think because we're talking about defining what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. most of the anti-CVE crowd, which 
when I speak against CVE, for example, sure. it's about government-led CVE. I don't have a problem, and I've talked about it in a message before. I've, you know, if there is anything that would lead somebody down a path that we, th- I mean, the Prophet sallallahu even talked about it. When I that saw man- your great article on that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I like, really like that a lot. So he, uh, I mean, we had a man. This story is really uh, cited about this. Uh, there's a hadith of Imam Ali about what is, is later known as the Khawarij, mm-hmm. but there's also the hadith where the Prophet saw this man comes in. The companions were praising how great of a worshiper this man was and how pious he appeared and all of these things. And he, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, said, "From that man's progeny is going to come a group, a people." that you will even belittle your prayer against theirs and your fasting against theirs. Like the Khawarish, basically. Right. So he saw also acknowledge this and discuss this. The problem I would have, though, mm-hmm. is if I'm partnering with a government and the government mm-hmm. comes in and says, and there is now empirical evidence available of the U.S. government talking about promoting Naqshbandiya, for example, and the Hanafi school of law, because it coincides and it aligns with particular goals for foreign policy. Correct. Now, just the fact that I even had a discussion with the RCMP, that I connected with them during my time as an imam, had I not been really well-rooted in the community, mm-hmm. and people knew who I was and what I'm about, mm-hmm. and I was very transparent about everything, right. I would have lost all credibility. Mm-hmm. Because there is this... Muslim generally, Muslim relations with governments generally is not the best. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's an understated way. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at a place like Al-Azhar, for example, now, and a lot of these religious institutions, they've lost credibility with the masses because... Ulema Sultan. Yeah, Ulema Sultan. So now government-led CVE efforts, as they are espoused by mm-hmm. government entities, mm-hmm. they're basically looking to promote one version of Islam down to the details of which tasawwuf tariqah you follow and which madhab they want to espouse. So you could see why the community would find that very problematic. Correct. So what you, when you put it out, like all the protocols and all these, it sounds really nice. And you, all of your discussion is about the community and it's a civil pharmacy, which we, nobody would have a disagreement about that. Mm-hmm. But what is being promoted and thrown in our face as communities usually what gets the platform yes. is government-led CVs. So if you could give me kind of a, sure. you know, or the listeners even like, okay. What's what, the deal? What's the deal? Are you talking civil or government? Should we sure. distinguish between the two and, and be against one or for one? Or how should we handle all of this? La ilaha illallah. I will not be in the business of telling my ummah what they should and should not do let me put it this way though i do think that there should be at least a understanding and a distinction between what is government-led and community-led in my capacity as an academic researcher i will say that the evidence to me looking at this suggests that the most effective approaches to violence prevention let's put aside the term cve for now Mm -hmm. violence prevention almost entirely always going to be community-led rather than government-led. And that's not just true when it comes to things like violent extremism. That's also true in terms of things like gang violence prevention. Uh, And so looking at it from that angle, you know, I, I, I I see the greater promise, at least empirically speaking, 
from uh, from community. I do think that it is very important then for this distinction between g- government-led and community-led. I will also say that sort of leveraging my former civil rights uh, and civil liberties advocacy background, and I'm speaking strictly in a U.S. context because I'm sure that the laws are probably going to be somewhat different in Canada, but insofar as the United States is concerned, I think that there is a very strong argument that one can make for saying that trying to promote certain types of Islam over others would be in violation of what's known as the Establishment Clause within Mm. the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Again, I'm not a legal scholar, and I'm sure this is going to be up to debate, but there are even people like, for instance, Samuel Raskoff, who... um, is currently a law professor at New York University, by the way, happened to be head of the uh, intelligence analysis unit at the New York Police Department, the NYPD. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is before he left before they started up their whole spying thing that the Associated Press reported on. So I want to give credit to him on that. But, um, but nonetheless, this is a man who uh, is not just an academic, but a seasoned practitioner and professional when it comes to uh, the issue of counterterrorism. Mm. Uh, and even he has argued that those kinds of potential things are highly problematic. And that's why in his article, um, Establishing uh, Official Islam, he actually says that it is better to devolve these kinds of things to the community, to civil society, mm. rather than to the government. I will also say for just a moment of shameless self-promotion here for the purposes of just uh, uh, connecting the listeners to resources that as he's making that argument, he cites an earlier work that I had done at the Muslim Public Affairs Council Mm. called Building Bridges to Strengthen America. In that document, I basically argue for a community-led rather than a government-led approach to countering violent extremism and counterterrorism. So why are we seeing a lot of government-led, a lot of the Muslims pro-CVE that seem to have a platform, they're working within government entities. And the, and the support for that or the, or the justification for it is these are the resources. Funding. 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 We need the resources, so we do the government. Well, the government is the one that's going to give us the resources, so the government wants some output from these things, so they want some tangible evidence for it, and so... This kind of conflict of interest arises. I'll start off by saying that it may be a good idea to get uh, on this program uh, a Muslim who's working with one of those government agencies. So I will not necessarily say that I'm going to be speaking on their behalf. Might be a good idea to get get someone there and I can recommend some names afterwards for that. Um, But there are a number of of reasons why um, in my sort of uh, analysis, uh, why this sort of phenomenon is taking place. Um, part of it has to do with post 9 11 politics. As I mentioned earlier, there is this expectation in the public at large that we need to do whatever we can to protect ourselves against terrorism. Mm. And oftentimes then what that leads to is sort of this liberties versus security dichotomy. And when people are scared, what are they going to do? They're going to choose. They'll elect Trump. (laughs) Right. They will, they will choose, uh, uh, they will choose 
safety, safety security, over yeah. liberty. Yeah. And one of the challenges is in combating the perceptions of fear is to make sure that people understand clearly that their values, and they do hold these values, but that these values are not in conflict then with smart and effective approaches to security. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's what I would call the politics of fear. And in a democracy where public perception drives public policy, that's, that's what an election is, right? Yes. Public perception drives public policy. Yeah. Politics of fear, I wouldn't even just say trickle down, but they flow down sometimes like a mighty river yeah. onto then how policy is shaped and formed and even onto the heads of those communities that will be on the receiving end of those policies, whether in the form of law enforcement surveillance on the one hand or on the other hand in the form of tax dollars mm. for certain things. Um, that's one factor. Another, though, um, has been uh, that for a long time, the, the policy conversations about CVE, whenever community members were invited to the table, often had very few voices from Muslim communities. Mm. And bear in mind, of course, that... Uh, you know, our communities are, are decentralized, they are divergent, they are, uh, uh, you know, they differ on a lot of things. You know, it's funny. Um, I, half of my family's Jewish. Okay. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I happen to be Muslim. I embraced Islam about almost 14 years ago. Half of my family's Jewish. Mm. And a uh, famous saying uh, that, I, that I hear from a lot of my family members, and we'll call them our spiritual cousins, is that when you get two rabbis in a room, you get three opinions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in many ways, subhanAllah, following that Abrahamic tradition, I feel like we get that as well as yes. Muslims, right? Uh, uh, two Muslims, 14 opinions, four schools of thought, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> Um, and so oftentimes then there, there are a lot of differing opinions, uh, that take place, but there, but even with those differing opinions, we have few people that often are, uh, that come to the table and to the credit of the, of the federal government, to their credit, they actually do try to invite a large number of communities there, but oftentimes because of for instance, a lack of a distinction between government-led and community-led uh, 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 CVE programs and what involvement, if any, government should have in these kinds of things, what role or roles, if any, they should have mm. in these kinds of things, the communities themselves or their organizations, to be very specific, and their thought leaders, to be even more specific, mm. oftentimes uh, will uh, not either come to the table or um, they come with um, policy positions that are very difficult to reconcile or, 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 or don't uh, advocate many times for tangible alternatives and solutions. That's what I'm really trying to get at. Okay. And so it creates, a, in other words, all these things come together to create vacuums yeah. that then lead to these kinds of policy outcomes. It's very complicated, but this is why, uh, for instance, the more that I see um, 
community-led efforts, the more that I'm beginning to see government actors take notice of these kinds of things, which then they take notice and potentially influences and reshapes their their underlying assumptions and mm. thoughts that are there. The other thing I'll also quickly mention as well is, is that there have also been a lot of um, non-Muslims that have been coming to the table talking about CBE as well. Mm. And that's also something that's very important to keep in mind that you have, for instance, former white supremacists saying, you need to look at our issues too. Mm. You need to look at this issue of violent far-right extremism because you're you're only focusing on Muslims. And not only is that alienating and stigmatizing to them, but you're overlooking us. You're overlooking our problems here. Mm. And so you're seeing an increased <clears throat> involvement there, and that's shaping the way that things are turning out too. So there's just to expand it a little bit, because the, sure. there is a difference between white extremists and, and Muslim extremists. What do you think the, the differences are? The difference is in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. The white extremists are talking about you know, domestic issues that they have grievances with regards to whatever. Whereas uh, Muslim extremists, all, just about everything they have to say is not about how decadent the society is and we have to fix it and reshape it and all of this stuff. They, the, the beginning, the seed for all of their grievances goes back to foreign policy. And so this is another issue we would have with CVE, whether it's community-led or government-led. It puts the burden, the onus completely on Muslims to handle this issue of these individuals going off the wall and doing whatever and pretends that there is no connection whatsoever between foreign policy and, and foreign actions by the U.S. government, specifically towards Muslim countries, mm -hmm. and what these guys are deciding to go ahead and do. They feel justified in attacking. I mean, I'm sure you've read some of their justifications, heard what they have to say. They kill our women and children, so we'll just do it to them. And there is this sense of which... For a lot of non-Muslims, they, they may not get how connected Muslims feel globally, this idea of the ummah, that, yeah, I'm American, I'm Canadian, but I also feel a kinship towards people in Iraq, Libya, all of these, because they're Muslim brothers and sisters. And for an extremist who wants to kind of figure out how to handle this and wants to do something, that comes into play. So is part of CVE, whether it's go specifically government, do they have as part of it a, an attempt to look at other root causes involved in this that go beyond religious grievances and ideology? Okay. Another one of the $64,000 <laughs> questions. Um, I'm going to depart from what I said earlier for a moment here. Uh, in my role at START, I'll be very clear about this. What I'm about to say definitely is not in any way, shape, or form representative of the University of Maryland or Stark, but is my own personal opinion here. And that is a couple of things. Uh, one is that I think what it underscores to me as a Muslim community member is the need for what I would call sort of two-track action. Mm. Um, I do believe that there needs to be community-led CBE. And articulating that, not just in practice, but then also making sure that the policies at a federal level in the United States, those are supported domestically. That's number one. I'm a firm believer in that. But number two is that 
uh, as part of a larger sort of advocacy strategy and package that um, there needs to be uh, uh, a concerted effort by Muslim communities to continue to engage on the foreign policy question. In other words, what I'm trying to point out is that it's not necessarily uh, – in. It's not mutually exclusive to say, for instance, we want community-led CVE and also to say to elected officials and to policymakers uh, in the executive branch that there needs to be foreign policy changes. Mm-hmm. I think that that is something that's, uh, that's very, very important there in large part because as someone who analyzes the, uh, the messaging uh, and the statements of violent extremists of all kinds – whether it's white supremacists, militias, sovereign citizens, anti-abortion extremists, or in this particular case, um, what I like to call violent takfiris, mm. um, uh, is that uh, foreign policy is a huge, huge part of the narrative in part because in order for a narrative, <laughs> a story to be convincing, it has to have some connection to the realities on the ground. Yes. That is... That, and there's no denying that. Um, it's as one colleague um, from Georgia State University put it, it's the kernel of truth mm. that must be addressed um, uh, when it comes to the question of dealing with narratives and extremist propaganda. So I, 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 I wholeheartedly concur on that. But what I also then say is, is that in acknowledging uh, the, the foreign policy piece is that number one, uh, that I don't think, again, that it's an either-or. I think mm. that one can say there should be community-led CVE programs while also engaging in advocacy for more just mm-hmm. foreign policy, uh, uh, for, foreign policies, however one chooses to mm. define that. Uh, and then number two uh, is to also, and this is where I'm going to return as a social scientist to this, is to say, though, that let's not just Let's not boil it down to one factor as well, yeah. though. Foreign policy is a very important aspect to the narratives and uh, to the grievances that people hold mm-hmm. for the justifications why they enter into violence. It is what I would call necessary, but insufficient, insufficient. on its own. So, because it's not down to one factor, the other factor... Because I, I would just say, yeah. I, I would venture to guess that Everyone around this table, I'll speak for myself at least, I have severe disagreements over the nature of U.S. foreign policy, but am I picking up a gun and shooting people? Yeah. No. No. So it's necessary but insufficient on its own. Yeah. So the the question I have with with regards to another factor, to what degree do you think the – the belongingness of the the Muslim community, American Muslim community, for example, to America – influences their interaction or their engagement with demanding foreign policy changes. So just from my experience interacting with a lot of Muslims, the there is this almost a, a case of cognitive dissonance, like, okay, we're an ummah, we're all one, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we're American. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have this allegiance or this kind of bond with Muslims at large, the two billion of us around the world, and at the same time, I'm supposed to have this allegiance or you know mm-hmm. to 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 the American kind of government and to my nation, and to what degree? And my my nation exerts some policies that I don't mm-hmm. agree with, so I feel angry about this. But at the same time, you're telling me that I need to engage with this, but 
that means I need to kind of feel more belongingness to the nation here. More. How do you how do you see that? How do you evaluate that? Sure. So, um, it's funny. What I've come to sort of realize over the past few years is that what I often do is a mix of storytelling combined with empirical research. Yeah. So let me let me sort of go with that a little bit. Start off with storytelling, and then sort of get into the to the empirics of this. The story that I would tell is sort of what I see as I would I would call this the the Muslim arc of history narrative. Mm. Subhanallah, one of the reasons why I fell in love with this dean almost 14 years ago was that wherever Islam has gone over its 1,400-year history is that it has this commonality, this tawheed, this oneness in Allah, a belief in, in oneness in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mm. and, and this wonderful, wonderful man, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muhammad, and yet this message, this beautiful religion of Islam, wherever it spreads, we have this, this commonality, this core set of beliefs. And there's a lot of ikhtilaf, a lot of, a lot of you know, uh, uh, shall we say, diversity and plurality in thought. Mm. But even so, we, we share these core beliefs in many ways. And yet wherever we go, Islam is indigenous to the local culture and society uh, uh, wherever it is. Mm -hmm. In Islam, you know, you see the masajid that are there and they look like pagodas and the only difference that you notice then is, is that it will have like la ilaha illallah written on top. Mm. One of the most compelling things for me was why I embraced the deen was sort of like the cultural argument there. I'm, I'm also half Latino. Mm. And I think back to uh, my roots as a Latin American are not just in Spain, but also uh, in in West Africa with mm. with with slaves, and also then with a lot of indigenous uh, uh, peoples that were uh, uh, living in the Americas. Mm. And so, what's so interesting and compelling to me then is is that at least insofar as Islam had um, spread uh, in uh, in the Americas. Uh, was uh, uh, that there are some anecdotes, for instance, that even uh, a lot of the, the, the indigenous people there had embraced Islam and yet still retained their identity. Or that, you know, the, the Fulani tribes of mm. West Africa, they were still very Fulani, but they were Muslim. Mm. Or to be in Muslim Spain, you know, you could be uh, you could be a Mos Arab, for instance, but yet embrace this this Muslim. You could be a local and yet still be a part of this greater community. Mm -hmm. And so, I generally think that this question of of shall we say in social science terms, uh, uh, localism versus supranationalism, the local identity mm. versus you know this broader supranational identity. Mm. Most Muslims in the United States, at least based on the empirical research that I found, they don't they they subscribe at some level to this narrative. Okay. They don't see a dichotomy between being American and being Muslim, okay. insofar at least as the values are concerned. Hmm. <coughs> the problem <clears throat> is that one of the one of the key uh, influencing narratives for for people who join into these groups, and again, necessary but insufficient. Yeah. It's sort of like it's recurring theme, social science-wise, necessary but insufficient, is that the identity formation of these young men and sometimes women, unfortunately, as well, mm. that when they go down these these paths into, into extremism, not just extremist ideas, but especially into violence, they see this as, as mutually exclusive. Mm. Their American identity then 
is something then that cannot be reconciled with their Muslim identity. In fact, that was one of the very arguments that Samir Khan had made in editions of Inspire magazine. I'm not going to talk about what the article is or anything because mm. I'm not going to do his propaganda work for him. Yeah. And Allah will judge him ultimately. But what I will say, though, is that he is an example of one of those types of individuals that espoused that kind mm. of narrative. It is historically irrelevant, culturally out of out of touch, but it taps into a, a discontent, though, uh, particularly among young people that they say, well, you know, okay, wh what's going on with our foreign policies here? But at mm. least... Theoretically, and at least identity-wise, value-wise, I and most other American Muslims, based on the empirical research, mm. do not necessarily see a contradiction between our national identity as, as, as Americans and our religious and transcendent identity as Muslims. Mm. I mean, they did burn their passports in one of their videos, ISIS guys. And that was a very symbolic act of yes. saying this, is the, this yeah. is the the dichotomy between the two. Which seemed odd. It struck a lot of people as an odd thing to do because I don't, I, I, I don't, I, as Canadians, I, we don't feel there's a contradiction between being a Canadian and a Muslim. Well, I think, yeah. you know, I think, and, you know, just actually we've been going on for more than an hour here. So oh, we'll probably start, uh, start, start <laughs> oh, wrapping things up. But I, I think, um, you know, to your point, I think, you know, we're in a, you know, this podcast is going to be probably played after the election, but you know this has very been, been a very uh, divisive election season, and you know Americans or American Muslims particularly have been only described as as most recently just as only we have to be on the front lines and in battling terrorism. So you have like you know, and this is where I sort of I, I think yeah. I think there's a common ground that we have in that in the sense that like I think we all could agree that um, you know we recognize that there there is a problem with extremism. That's that's uh, originating in the community, and that uh, the community itself that we will like community-driven initiatives. But you know, like realistically speaking, is there a roadmap for a CVE? If you want, if you want to still use that 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 term here, the CVE program that is completely community-driven without having government intervention, because I think this is always going to be a hard sell for uh, for especially Muslims in America. Whether you're an immigrant Muslim from just like first generation, whether you're um, an African American Muslim who's had um, communities who have had uh, very difficult experiences with law enforcement currently and hundreds of years for hundreds of years, and the distrust of of, of government intervention in community, I think it, it's very difficult. I I feel well, can I really trust the government? You know, we have a hard enough. Uh, you know, time trusting ourselves, trusting <laughs> people in our community, and then we already have this distress, like whether it's foreign policy or where it's you know a lot of you know you know domestic issues that we've, we we have grievances with the government, you know, and, and what they've done in certain communities in our own community. So practically speaking, I think if we're moving forward this discussion, you know, as we try to try to bring the discussion to a close, where are we going to go with this? Because like like we said, like you know, community, yeah, we want to do it within the community, but obviously the reality of the ground is that th this is also government. Uh, initiative and so where do we go here from here and correct me if i'm wrong but isn't it an american i don't want to say value but like a i don't know a norm or something that americans generally don't trust government while at the same time you're asking muslims to trust government oh absolutely Is, i mean like that's like, sort of like one of the hallmarks of like you know the whole you know you know state rights versus the yeah federal like rights. Just, i mean it's always been i mean from the very beginning of the founding fathers you know like that there was a distrust of of a you know a, um, a very powerful patronizing you know, kind of, yeah. you know like 
it's it's inbred. I mean, I, as we can see in our yeah. election cycle, has happened. It's, it's you know with the Trump phenomenon. That's that's inbred <laughs> in, in that community as well. So it, I mean, it's an issue. I don't really know how. You know, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to get credit. You know, get credibility in just like a year or two years of. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with decades, centuries of uh, really a loss, uh, absence of credibility in the community. Yeah, yeah man. Uh, <laughs> um, what you've described, I think, uh, is sort of a general culture of a love-hate relationship with the government. Uh, there's certainly a strong narrative there. But on other things like Social Security and Medicaid, Americans love those things, too. So... Uh, and there have been a lot of other uh, great sort of uh, initiatives there, National Park Service, uh, Department of Education, hell, even civil rights bills as well. I mean, uh, have uh, are cases of government intervention because it basically was saying that you cannot leave it up to the states entirely because otherwise in certain parts of the country you would still have segregation over other parts of, that would be integrated. Mm. So – I think that there's something of a love-hate relationship that that's that's there at times. Um, can we find something or a roadmap that is the closest thing to a purely community-led CVE? I think it's important, and this is about uh, going back to expectation management. Um, there really is. Um, very few examples of purely community-led CVE. It's really a spectrum, if you will. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, sort of, if I could say, um, the a good example of purely government-led CVE would be the shared responsibility committees. Um, and even that still involved community members. So some people would argue that there's some sort of a mix, but that was very much driven by the FBI, the Department of Justice, Shared responsibility committees that Daoud Walid, I think, made a very sort of poignant criticism and articulation of. The other sort of uh, uh, end of the spectrum would almost be like informal counseling sessions between a congregant and a religious leader. Uh, and not just necessarily a, um, uh, an imam, but the best example that I always think of whenever I, I – want to talk about CVE across at least four out of the five elements of the of uh, of of the CVE uh, effort there is actually the case of, of an individual by the name of Stephen John Jordy mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, a, a a Christian violent extremist who was arrested in 2003 essentially um, his congregation has always had a, a sort of a relationship with police. This was an individual who was very staunchly against abortion, um, and they had a very sort of uh, a vibrant church life, a uh, very active uh, uh, church uh, in, in Florida. So you could call that prevention, so to speak, mm. uh, a lot of activities that were there. But this, this, this uh, 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 individual was basically like, I am so angry at this notion of abortion and the fact that there are also gay bars, that I want to actually stop abortion and I want to stop uh, 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 homosexuality in my area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I want to uh, do that by attacking uh, an abortion clinic and blowing up gay bars. And what ended up happening was that the, 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 the pastors and the elders of his church tried to counsel him for weeks and months at a time 
But unfortunately, it didn't work out. So what they ended up doing was they ended up notifying law enforcement, and he eventually ended up getting investigated and arrested. That to me is like the best example of mm-hmm. like at least four out of the five CVE stuff. And I imagine that um, he's now been out of jail since. So the church, churches like that typically uh, in the United States have very, very active prison ministry programs mm. and reentry programs. So I imagine that they're engaging <clears throat> in rehabilitation, reintegration of this individual as well. So I imagine then probably hitting five out of the five right there. Um, that would be a very good example of purely community-led. But the problem with those kinds of programs is that they're unstructured, they're very informal, um, and it, it, it does not often involve what, what it would otherwise clinically be called structured uh, professional judgment, mm. clinically structural professional judgments, um, which are, I mentioned before, those multidisciplinary teams. Those in, uh, involve a lot of structured professional judgments. They're much more formalized. You have measurements. There's ways to sort of monitor and evaluate individuals once they go through the crisis counseling. The more structured you get, the more formalized they get, the more resource-intensive they become. The problem is, is that our communities oftentimes lack resources. Yeah. DNet Center here is the exception rather than the norm, right? We have a $110 million community center here that we're at right now. The, the, average, the average yearly median budget in a Jewish or Christian congregation in the United States is $150,000. For Muslims... It's $70,000. Wow. Big disparity in incomes, right? So in order to get the resources, where are they going to turn to? Well, you have two options, basically. Three options. You can go to private businesses. You can go to philanthropic foundations. Or you can go to, uh, or you can go to the government. Two out of those three are not viable options right yeah. now. The philanthropic community... Uh, has basically said, no, we're not touching this at all. We don't want to. And there's complicated reasons behind that. Mm. Um, but essentially, they don't want to touch it. Uh, Muslim businesses, I don't think, have been reached out to really. And they're, how much can they give necessarily? I know that there's purchasing power within our communities, but do they want to get themselves involved in that? That's a, that's a business issue that they may or may not want to consider. So then the third and only viable option that Stone. typically takes place is government money. And the question becomes, under what circumstances, if at all, should government money be taken, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So generally speaking, if we're talking about community-led initiatives, it's going to be ones that use the money in a very targeted way for very specific purposes, they're incredibly transparent about it, um, and they take a very limited amount. They only take the absolute necessary amount, and they're very transparent and very structured about it. But again, even so, you're going to have cases then where communities by and large, Muslim and non-Muslim, especially in our case because we tend to lack resources, mm are going to at some level accept gov- government money, the question is going to become how much and how are they going to use it? Yeah. Well, we got to um, close up recently, but actually I, I just wanted to ask one question for both of you about <clears throat> um, you know, this issue of uh, self-radicalization. Uh, and I was wondering, Alejandro, maybe you could you know, talk about maybe the research. For uh, what we're seeing a lot is of 
these this self radicalization is driven from from the internet, you know, through uh, contacts through you know people in different far away, you know, through social media, and and I think a lot of Muslims will will also counter a lot of uh, Muslim Americans will say like you know a lot this is not coming from the masjids, they're not coming from the local mosques, it's coming from you know these these um, interactions on the internet. So I mean, have have in your research have have, have they looked into ways of countering this specific? you know, road to, to radicalization, because I think that's a, a struggle that all of us are having. I think it's a struggle that, you know, Muhammad, you could probably say too, is like as an imam, um, it's, it's, it's very, because you can't, you know, you're, you're reaching, you can only reach people in, in your flock, but then they're, they're going away and, and hearing from, a, from, you know, a different voice, you know, from some remote part in the internet. So, you know, just as we close, maybe it'd be nice to hear some of your thoughts on that. So-called internet radicalization, um, where people think of it as people just enter into violence solely because of influences based on what they read, watch, and see on the, on the internet. Again, a insufficient on its own. Often cases very necessary for a large number of individuals across a wide variety of backgrounds and ideologies. Necessary but insufficient on its own, like so many other things, because again, there's no one single pathway, nor a single factor that is associated with entry into ideologically motivated violence. That said, is that what the research does suggest is that it is important to have online and offline outreach uh, in order to sort of counteract this sort of stuff. Insofar as online outreach is concerned, a lot of the research that I do uh, at the University of Maryland has to do with what's called counter-narratives and alternative narratives. In other words, messaging, how to actually engage in conversations, discussions, marginalizing the, forgive the term, but sort of the sex appeal, if you will, and there is oftentimes some of that as well in its most literal sense, but that sort of appeal uh, and glamour of violent extremism. How how can that be done? And some of it is through messaging, but the most effective sort of stuff, especially when you're dealing with people that are beginning to get lured into those kinds of things directly are one-on-one -on -one interventions. So there needs to be, uh, in many ways, an understanding of why people get sucked into these things. And what the <clears> research <throat> suggests is that the online material that's out there, the videos, is sort of to pique people's curiosity and then get them interested in reaching out and connecting directly to people online. Mm -hmm. Because when people think of online radicalization, what they're typically thinking mostly of is they're thinking of the videos and the propaganda content. They're not thinking about, though, the personal relationships and interactions that are being formed. Yeah, like I'm, I'm particularly thinking of like, you know, these, these you know, Daesh of people who are very savvy, like for Twitter, yeah. like, you know, they go after like a 16-year-old awkward kid, you know, and they suddenly say, hey, everyone follow this kid, and suddenly he has like 500 followers, mm -hmm. and then he's like, wow, I'm important, you know, yes. I'm validated, and then, you know, that, that's and, the beginning. And essentially, they're taking a page out of sort of the human trafficker's handbook. They're grooming young men and women. Mm. I literally use the word grooming because the, the techniques that they're using are very similar to what human traffickers do. And so what it is is that they may come out of curiosity, but they stay for the sense of community. They stay mm. for this sense of belonging. They make me feel important. They make me feel like I'm a human being, like mm. I'm somebody. Mm. That is powerful. That is really powerful. 
And oftentimes they turn to the internet for those kinds of things because mm. they may not necessarily feel like they're getting that in their community. Yeah. And, and that, that's a very uncomfortable thing to say. But that is kind of like where my role as a community member and as a researcher sort of intersect here. That's also then why it's important that the mosques are so important, the community centers, because again, there's the online, the offline. We need dawa, we need e-dawa. We need to respond to that kind of propaganda, what is often termed in the literature as so-called jihadi cool. Mm. That needs to be responded with dawa and e-dawa. Yeah. Online and offline outreach there. Giving people the sense of dignity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already given them. It's just that we need to be the ones to help them realize it rather than some of these other recruiters or in some cases as well government informants feeding them the false misperceptions about what dignity really means. Yeah, this idea of making them feel like a human being, it's, um, it's unfortunate to admit this, but many mosques, the imams, the way that the, mess- the religion itself is being taught, it's uh, patronizing. It's you're the recipient, I'm the deliverer, just I'm going to tell you some stuff and you just take it. And I believe what I've observed briefly with some of these recruiters is there is, uh, it's not like that. It's it's uh, almost a peer-to-peer relationship. They, yes. they, your opinion is valued and they will talk back and forth and have mm-hmm. a discussion. Yep. And that oftentimes, unfortunately, doesn't happen in the mosque. I mean, I asked people when was the last time a young man went to the imam and said, um, listen, I, I like going to the bar on Friday, and that's why I don't come to Juma because it feels too bad to come and pray and then go to the bar. The relationship is not set. I mean, that would be something that somebody would go to the Prophet Sallallahu and say. Right. But the relationship set up now is not like that. And I've And I say this because that actually happened with me. I've had young men come to me and tell me, like, this is why they don't pray on Friday especially on Saturday because these are their party days and it just it doesn't settle well with them and I tell them you know what it's fine go party just pray one prayer and and I took that right out of the book of the prophet because he had a man come to him and said listen five prayers is too much I'll give you two I'll give you three and the prophet said fine go ahead just I'll take two from you <laughs> and the companion was like what <laughs> We have to pray at night. We have to do all of these things and you're just taking two or three prayers from this guy. And he saw us and said, don't worry about it. If he's really sincere, he's not going to be satisfied with just the two that he offered. He will on his own take it up and do the five. So there's a lot of mistrust even in our own acts of worship. We don't even trust that our rituals will transform a human being that we feel like we have to patronize over them and make them feel really small. And what a lot of the recruiters do is Assalamualaikum, bro. How you doing? And, you know, it's the grooming act. It's just to prep you up and make you feel like you're the somebody. And when you're at the mosque and you give that people those feelings and give them their individuality back and give them their sense of personhood back, they're very hard to persuade by recruiters after that. Um, so, yeah, it's a, like you say, it's necessary but insufficient. There's a lot of things involved in how to handle this issue and mitigate it as much as possible. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, you know, we could. I think we could just keep on talking. But um, just, uh, I'll just give each of you an opportunity, just like a, a closing thought, and maybe something that could, you know, give us some hope here, because you know, I think it's a lot of, uh, you know, it's it's a depressing discussion. I mean, it's something that's necessary. But um, just, you know, I'll start with you, Alejandro. <coughs> you know, any closing thoughts or your know, message to everyone, all our listeners? Yeah. 
this issue is a very complicated one. But subhanAllah, um, speaking as your Muslim brother and as a researcher on this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us an incredible set of spiritual and moral tools that if we can transform them and embed them in our institutions, we really have so much to offer ourselves in our world here. And it's amazing what things like compassion and understanding and empathy, just like the example that Brother Muhammad Gilan had just mentioned before. I say this, you know, and, and, and it has benefits in the, in, in the hereafter, but also in this life, because again, as, as a social scientist, right, I look at the empirical, the observable. What, what can I see in this dunya? And if, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often says, you know, that there are signs in this world that, you know, can point us, you know, uh, in the hereafter and that there are, you know, these are manifestations, you know, of, of things for us to think and ponder upon, then for me as a social scientist, looking at the evidence there and looking at the compassion and whatnot, this is, this is one of our greatest sort of tools that we have uh, in this struggle against violent extremism. So I see that not just as a social scientist, but as a fellow believer, uh, that, that there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of potential here. There's a lot of fear and a lot of misunderstanding upon this, and, and it's important to acknowledge that. But through conversations and discussions like these, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to unpack a lot of very important issues here. And I thank you all very much for inviting me, and I hope that these kinds of civil and especially compassionate discussions uh, uh, continue. We have the solutions. We just need to sort of tap into them. Yeah, and um, it's it's although it's a depressing topic to talk about and the state of the ummah and all these things, but there's always a a, a kind of a bright side to tragedy. Um, and I look at this as had it not been for Daesh and Al Qaeda and all of these extremists and all of these messages that are coming out, there is a lot more interest from Muslims and non-Muslims into looking into Islam and finding out about what this tradition has to offer. And a lot of Muslims are kind of like. Do we actually promote these things? And so it's there is a positive in that people are becoming more engaged in the community. You know, if before we weren't really that closely connected and attached to each other and talking about these things and taking, you know, thinking about each other in that way, now we are, um, which we weren't before in the same sense. People just came to the mosque, they prayed, mashallah, and then they just left, gathered together in Ramadan, pray your taraweeh, and leave and have your iftar after Maghrib. And now it's more like everybody's constantly coming around and trying to find out. And there's a lot more interest in the seerah now, which hasn't been before. Yeah. Because it's like, what? Did the Prophet actually do this? Did the companions do this? And now people are like, okay, I need to look into the seerah. And so, yeah, in my, you know, they say in Arabic, nafia. You know, how often is a terrible thing could actually bring benefit? So, yeah, it's we still have to handle the current issues of the violence and we have to deal with that. But also not to lose sight of the fact that from it, we've gotten some benefits from, from this that we wouldn't have them otherwise. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Galan. Thank you, uh, Alejandro. Um, it's been a very, you know, I think, illuminating discussion. It, you know, makes a difference when it's not just like 140 characters back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we're actually smiling. Actually, we're actually all smiling here. You know, we're everything's everything's cool here. This, you know, I think it's important. Like we had discussion. It's not like uh, you know this this black and white it's not this binary that i think is also often 
put into our discourses, not just as Muslims, but, you know, as, as Americans. And uh, thank you to all the listeners. Um, please remember, if this is the first time listening to us, subscribe to our uh, the Iman Wire podcast. Also check out for the latest articles and other podcasts at imanwire.com. And uh, thank you again. Assalamu alaikum wa barakatuh.